listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. In today's episode, we're going to explore diet trends taking off this summer, their origins, and whether there's any truth behind them. We're going to talk to our guests about why they think diet trends have become so popular, the influence of social media, and whether certain demographics are more prone to following these diets. We'll also touch upon the impact of COVID on people's susceptibility to summer diet trends this year. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Lowe and Priya Chu. I'm going to hand over to Jen and Priya to tell us a bit more about themselves. Jen, over to you. Hi, I'm Jen. I've been a registered dietitian now for around 15 years, which makes me quite old. Um, (laughs) um, I specialise in eating disorders and disordered eating, as well as bariatric surgery. Um, And I work also with weight management and intuitive eating and a little bit of IBS as well. Um, I work solely in private practice now. Uh, Beforehand, I worked in New Zealand for a couple of years in their district health boards and also in the NHS in eating disorder services. And I still consult now for an NHS eating disorder service. Uh, My background degree is in psychology. And then I did an MSc in nutrition and a postgrad diploma in dietetics. So I sort of naturally gravitated towards the mental health aspect of dietetic therapy. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much, Jen. And Priya, over to you. Thank you so much for having me on. So my name's Priya Chu. Um, Much like Jen, I've been qualified for just over 15 years. So we must be about the same age. You're not as old as you think. Um, I um, have a degree in nutritional sciences. And then I went on and I did my postgraduate diploma and my master's. And then I was left not really knowing what to do because at that point there weren't that many jobs around, unlike now. So um, I ended up doing some admin work, looking for jobs. And I kind of fell into what I'm doing now so I didn't set out to go into mental health and it kind of found me and I got a job in eating disorders and that has led to what I do now so I now work fully as a freelance dietitian in private practice I um, tend to work with people with disordered eating with eating disorders with IBS and then I do a little bit of work in chronic fatigue as well I also work with PR companies, with brands. Um, I do some social media work and I also do a fair bit of media work as well, whether that's writing with journalists or whether that's doing some on camera or behind the scenes work. Um, And I love the variety of what I get to do. Fantastic. Thank you so much to Jen and Priya for that fantastic introduction. So um, we're going to be talking to Jen and Priya about the challenges that patients face when trying to follow more balanced diets and discuss perhaps why these um, trends and diet fixes have become so popular. We're also going to talk about the dangers associated with diet trends and the role that we as health professionals play in educating the general public on the potential harm that they can cause. But before we delve into those topics of discussion, we're going to go to our quick fire questions. So my first question to you both is, what was your favorite subject at school? Jen, I'm gonna come to you first for that one. Um, Do you know what? I really had to think about this because I can barely even remember being at school. But I think um, I really liked maths because I could do it really easily. So I could get through my homework really fast. Um, But the stuff I actually enjoyed learning about was the science, 
sort of side and but also art as well I found art very relaxing to do I'm not very good at it but I did enjoy it <laughs> taking part the counts definitely <laughs> and how about you Priya what was your favorite subject I was one of those people that really liked school so I liked most things but I loved anything to do with English language English literature I've always been very into reading books Um, I was one of those people that was in every single band available. So I was in the concert band, the wind band, the jazz band, and I played a variety of different instruments from the baritone saxophone to the flute and the piccolo. So I was in the music department quite a lot. And then I also really liked history. So nothing to do with where I've ended up in my career whatsoever. Oh, that's brilliant to know. Thank you. And if you were both to emigrate tomorrow, where would it be and why, Jen? Um, if I didn't have to work, I'd go somewhere on a beach in the middle of nowhere. That would be my ideal place to be. Um, if I had to, I mean, I lived in New Zealand for a couple of years, as I said. New Zealand's a pretty good place if you don't mind being miles away from all of your family and friends. So either of those options. Priya, how about yourself? I feel that I've got to say Sri Lanka because I am half Sri Lankan. Um, however, the situation is not great out there at the minute, and I don't know how I would do for work. Um, but yeah, I think I'd have to stick with Sri Lanka for the food and just the beautiful scenery. Mm, definitely a place on my wish list to go to as well. And finally, what's your favourite genre of music, Jen? Um, I like listening to kind of very chilled music, the sort of yoga. And I think that's probably a stage of my life that is fairly manic the rest of the time so if I get a choice that is what I would listen to most of the time I don't get the choice most of the time it's my kids choosing so most of the time I'm listening to pop music <laughs> which is also fine <laughs> how about you Priya is it the same in your household definitely Alexa tends to be taken over by my children and my Spotify playlist is not what I would choose to be listening to it's all of them um but if I'm choosing to listen um my faith is really important to me so I tend to listen to worship music most of the time when I'm working brilliant thank you so much both of you for answering those questions now we're going to delve into our main topics for discussion today which is all about summer diet trends so I want to begin by asking you, Priya, um, how do you define a summer diet trend and what are some of the diet trends that you're expecting to emerge this summer? So a summer diet trend, I would say, is a way of eating that is popular and has some kind of novelty factor. It promotes some form of health benefit or a weight loss benefit. And I think we've all seen how these fads come around time and time again. So whilst there might be something brand new that springs up, I think as nutrition professionals, we can just be aware of what are the usual ones that always come up. So things like low carb, um, such as the keto diet, anything that cuts out food groups and becomes quite restrictive and anything that's geared towards fast term weight loss is something that I would expect to be coming up this summer. And where do these origins from for these trends evolve from, Jen? And do you think that there's any any truth behind some of these fad diets that we're seeing um, coming about? Um, I think the fad diets use a lot of pseudoscience, and so there's there's quite a lot of um, 
you know, the pseudoscience makes it sound quite believable. So people will use um, cherry pick pieces of evidence. So, for example, you know, I've seen ones coming up this year that's more um, based on kind of do this for three months. And we've got different phases through this this package and you know and they're more based around wellness so they're saying oh let's do this and you'll feel really great and you'll have loads of energy but actually fundamentally they're still really cutting down on the calories um and and one in particular that I was that I was looking at which you know as Priya said is is basically the same thing but just packaged slightly differently you know the same thing arises all of the time it's low low calorie, um, cutting out food groups and um, kind of trying to reset your metabolism or lose weight really quickly or we know whatever it promises um, to do. Um, But they were using intermittent fasting. So they'll cherry pick bits of evidence to sort of prove that actually intermittent fasting is the way forward or you know, time restricted fasting is the way eating is the way forward. Um, But actually, when you look at the whole bigger picture, you can always you can always find um, pieces of evidence that are going to support your argument for something. If you look at certain, you know, certain articles, but when you look at the overall bigger picture, um, we can actually see, for example, that the, the intermittent fasting using time restricted eating, um, so eating in only an eight hour window actually leads to slightly more loss of lean tissue and slightly reduced physical activity levels. But actually, otherwise, um, you end up with the same outcomes as an energy restricted diet overall. So I guess, you know, what what it they do is they take the pieces of evidence that they want to take and they use that to kind of make stuff up to to sort of make it sound very believable to the general public. Absolutely. And obviously the general public are are largely influenced by platforms like social media at the moment. Um, Priya, I wonder what role you think social media plays in pressurizing people to feel that they have to perhaps follow a certain eating pattern or look a certain way. I think working in the field that I work in and eating disorders, I'm working with quite a lot of adolescents and what I see in that group specifically is that social media is huge. That is where they're getting all their information from. Even my teenagers who live in my house, I've got um, 11 and 12 year old uh, girls, so not yet teenagers, but they're spending most of their time when they can on YouTube. And that's where they're looking at, you know, makeup tips, how we should look, exercise tips, all of these hacks and these tricks. When you think about this whole idea of trying to, find a hack, trying to find a quick, easy answer for cooking or for, you know, getting something done quicker in your life. That's exactly what people are trying to do with their bodies and with their nutrition as well. I think everybody's looking for this quick fix and this easy answer and social media, because it gives us those short, sharp snippets, lends itself really well to that. And then we've obviously got influencers and we've got the social media stars who are, suggesting this way of life and this way of being that if you follow what I do you're going to end up being successful like me you're going to end up being me basically and I think specifically the younger generation and the up-and-coming generation are getting very drawn into that. 
Yeah, and just to follow on from that, Priya, those preteen years and indeed teenage years are really important, influential years in a young person's life. So if you notice that they're spending a lot of time on platforms like YouTube, for example, how can you tap into that and kind of tackle the problem early on um, to, to prevent it from becoming a bigger problem later on? I think that is one of those big questions. You know, how do we do that? I was at um, secondary school last night for a parents' evening and they were talking about the issue of mobile phones and how children are just constantly going around with their phone. They're on their phone in lessons. They're on their phone in between lessons. You know, how do we, how do we deal with this issue of people continually being on social media? Um, I don't have the answer to that, but I think definitely trying to talk to people in a clinical setting around who is it you're following? Who is on your favorite list now on Instagram? What's coming up regularly on your feed? And what are the qualifications of the people that you're following? And what is their core message? Is it something that actually you subscribe to? Thank you, Priya. And Jen, in terms of uh, people that are perhaps more susceptible to following these diet trends, have you noticed that there are any particular demographics or groups of patients that you work with that are more susceptible? Um, Actually, to be honest, for my clients, I have all ages and genders. It doesn't seem to be um, kind of targeting certain groups. Having said that, I think um, generally the younger people, particularly for social media side of things, are much more susceptible. You know, if you go kind of above our age group, most people aren't on those social media channels. So um, so certainly, you know, with social media, that's that's targeting the younger age groups. Um, uh, so the, there's not necessarily a stereotypical person that I see that are following these diet trends. Um, however, all of my clients that I see have a difficult relationship with food. That's why they're coming to see me in the first place. Um, and, to, you know, most of my clients are probably within the age range of about 16 up to 40 um so yeah those are you know what I tend to see but then that's not saying that that can't happen above that age range most of my patients are also females but again that doesn't mean that males aren't being um influenced by those those social media messages and the the diet trend messages that are going out everywhere it's just that actually they're less likely to seek help I think yeah, that, that's interesting. And um, Priya, I'm wondering if you think COVID's also had any kind of impact on people being more susceptible to following these diet trends? Any thoughts on that? I think COVID has led to people being on screens more and perhaps being on social media more and trying to connect with others um, and also something to do as well. Um, and I think we know that people have eaten differently and their relationship with food has changed during COVID, not for everybody, but for some people, there's certainly a group of people for whom it seems to have really helped their relationship with food. They've been able to cook more at home and they've been able to focus more on their health, but then for other people, they have used food as a source of comfort, understandably. And now they're looking at, okay, it's summer coming up. I want to get my body ready for wearing a swimming costume. Um, and therefore I need to lose that weight quickly. And that message seems to be out there on social media. And I think it's really sad that 
you know, over the years, there's been a lot of work that's gone into, let's try and kick these messages. Let's try and explain, you don't need to get your body ready for the beach. You already have a body, it's already ready for the beach. Um, but those messages are really strong at the minute on social media, I would say. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to that with their clients, perhaps, and summer holidays coming up and, and people perhaps haven't been on holiday for a couple of years because of COVID and maybe their body has changed over the last couple of years. So have you got any advice, um, Jen and Priya, to how health professionals can help their patients if they're perhaps feeling you know, a bit less confident about their body and trying to embrace perhaps body changes that have gone on over the last couple of years? Jen, any thoughts first? Um, as, as hard as it is, I think partly it's about acceptance, you know, actually two years ago, we were two years younger. So, you know, that's going to make a difference as well. Um, so partly it's just about accepting where you are. And I think that's the first thing that I get people to work on, like actually you are still you as you are right now. So, and that, and that's enough, you know, you don't have to lose this, lose this weight that you want to lose or, you know, try and look like this model that you've seen on social media, this normally airbrushed, you know, completely um, fake looking person. Um, so, so that acceptance is really important. And then I guess then just making really slow, sustainable changes rather than it being something that they're trying to achieve in, in a three week period. Um, just going, OK, well, if your eating habits have become slightly less healthy than you want them to be, then let's look at what we can do to try and bring that back a little bit more to where you want them to be. And that's not necessarily certainly not cutting out food groups, but not even necessarily thinking, oh, I've got to stop eating the bad foods in inverted commas. It's more about kind of going, OK, well, where can I put more of the healthier foods back into my diet? Where can I have more fruits and vegetables? Where can I add in more whole grain carbohydrates, more oily fish, you know, all the sort of standard Mediterranean diet type of advice. Um, and, and when people, I find that when people start kind of thinking in that way of adding in more of the healthy foods, they naturally reduce the amount of the unhealthy foods that they're having. Priya, have you got any tips to add to what Jen said? I would agree with Jen that we want to try and encourage people to be really kind to their bodies and accepting of where they are and presenting this model and this idea that actually short term changes are not going to be lasting changes. So we need to look long term about you know, what are your goals long term? Where do you want to end up as a person? Um, so if you were starting out in a new career, you might have a career progression perhaps you need to have that as a long-term viewpoint for where do you want to end up with your health rather than how your body looks and how can we make these small changes that are going to be lasting habits that you can use for the rest of your life. Yeah, you talked about creating, you know, lifelong healthy habits. So I'm wondering, are all diet trends and fad diets bad? Are there any advantages perhaps to someone transitioning to following a particular diet trend, Jen? What do you think? Um, generally, I would say there aren't many benefits to most of these sort of fad diets. Having said that, you do sometimes see some, you know, I've seen one in my local gym recently about increasing fruits and vegetables and, you know, increasing whole grain carbohydrates. Um, so, 
So things that are a little bit more sustainable and stepwise in terms of being able to be achievable for people for longer than a two week period is great. Um, it's I think it's really positive that people want to improve their health. So I think, you know, not taking away from the fact that actually, you know, people don't kind of go on a summer diet to to not improve their health. They be, they really believe that they're that they're improving their health by doing this. So I suppose, you know, being mindful of the fact that we don't want to, as healthcare professionals, kind of poo-poo those diets and go, oh, no, this is completely the wrong thing for you to be doing, because actually kind of taking them from, okay, actually, well, it's really, you know, it's really beneficial for you to be wanting to improve your health. So this is really good, but actually this possibly isn't the best way to be doing it. And, you know, I'm pointing out perhaps some of the the pitfalls in those or some of the benefits more to kind of doing it in a slightly different way. Yeah. And and Priya, I'm wondering, have you got any advice to health professionals based on what Jen said, how to avoid us being perceived as being the food police? I love how Jen said that we need to reflect back to people. Um, And I think reflective answers and listening is is really key so you know reflecting oh it's absolutely great that I see you want to make some changes to your health perhaps that's not the best way to do that long term but shall we come up with a plan how we can do that so I think Jen's really right that we don't want to be seen as the food police who come in and say no that's absolutely wrong you have gone the wrong way about that this is the right way we need to try and meet people part way and sometimes that can mean using an element of the diet that they wanted to use maybe there's a reason that they wanted to use that maybe they wanted to go low carb because they think it is the best approach well okay let's try and bring some of that in but let's also look at what are the other foods we can add in to help you here so let's have a look at what are the benefits of whole grains you want to go low carb okay but let's still try and have the whole range of nutrition that your body needs as well yeah, I totally agree with that. I think meeting the the client where they are is really important because if we go in there telling them what to do, that's never going to induce any kind of behaviour change. They're more likely to just go away thinking that woman doesn't know anything. Um, so and and it brings up people's walls. Whereas if you can do exactly as Priya was saying, you know, give them the psychoeducation around, okay, so these are the reasons we might want whole grains in our diet. I understand that right at the moment, this isn't what you want to be doing, but perhaps we could try and get fiber in in other ways or, you know, whatever it is, I think that can be really beneficial. And it's sort of in that way, you're working with the client rather than trying to work from a place of you're the expert, they're the the non-expert, which, you know, we should never be working from that place. They know their bodies and they know their minds more than we do. We should trust them in some respects for that as well. Absolutely. So it's, it's very much working with rather than against and that patient-centered approach that I'm sure lots of our dietitians listening are familiar with. Um, I want to move on to talking about the long-term health consequences of following fad diets or restrictive diet plans. Priya, I know you work with a lot of people with disordered eating. So can you talk us through what some of the long-term disadvantages are of going down the route of, of diets? 
I think it depends how long we're looking at long term. So I've got some people who have been following fad diets for years and years and years and years. And then that can lead to them actually suffering in terms of their bone health. It can lead to actually their brain function being impaired because cognitively their brains haven't been nourished enough. Um, and it can impair their decision making. You know, it can affect how they're hormones are working. So perhaps they aren't having a regular menstrual cycle. We know that that's going to have impacts for the rest of the hormone production levels in the body as well. But it can globally affect how the whole body works. We're thinking things like temperature control, memory and recall. I think these are the things that people don't think about when they start making changes to their nutrition. Okay, so I'll cut some foods out. I'll cut out dairy. I'll cut out gluten because that's going to help me lose weight. But if we're not adequately replacing those nutrients and nourishing our bodies, that is going to have a long term impact if you're going to be doing it for more than a few months. Absolutely. But obviously, when we go through those consequences, they, they can sound quite dramatic when you talk about, you know, loss of menstrual cycles and bone problems, etc. And probably for a patient hearing that for the first time, it can be quite overwhelming. So I'm wondering, Jen, how do you um, have that difficult conversation, but do it in a way that's not going to completely overwhelm your client? Um. So in terms of somebody with an eating disorder, they're often already very aware of those consequences. Um, so once, you know, once I tend to start seeing them, they have often had an eating disorder for quite a long time. People who are newer to, to the disordered eating, eating disorder, um, it's really tough. Like they don't necessarily want to hear, you know, so, so I've got quite a few who are, quite young um you have to be really careful with how you bring those sorts of things up um and i really gauge it based on who they are you know so some people can kind of take in that information some people you can feel their walls are totally up there's no way that that information is even going to get anywhere even if you say it um so some for some people it just takes a little bit longer to be able to build that rapport so that they trust you and they trust the information that you're giving them you know and I give in a variety of different ways so I will say all of that stuff but I will also give them written information you know not necessarily written by me actually because again you know they can kind of go oh well you know she's just making this up whereas if you give them you know, the CCI resources, for example, that we all use, um, then, you know, that that's kind of written by an external person, which I think can be quite helpful as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it very much depends patient to patient as to how to approach that. Um, yeah. Are there any useful resources that either of you would recommend that dietitians can use in their practice or perhaps refer patients to when having conversations about diet trends and the dangers associated with them long term yeah as I mentioned the CCI resources are really good if you just google those they're Australian resources but they're updated um, they do it for a variety of mental health um, illnesses actually and um, but disordered eating is within there and they've got worksheets that you can work through with people again depending on um, the, the stage that they're at sometimes those are quite useful 
And sometimes people can't think cognitively yet until they've had enough um, of the trauma therapy to be able to do that sort of work. But those those are really useful psychoeducation sheets, I find. Yeah, I'd agree. I also would recommend those ones. I think they're used pretty much across the board by dietitians who work in this area. Brilliant. Well, we'll definitely make sure to link to them in the show notes for anyone wanting to check them out. Um, I wanted to ask you both, what role do dietitians play in addressing these diet trends? I know you're both quite active on social media, for example. So um, Priya, have you got any advice as to how dietitians can use their public profile and platforms to help to tackle this problem? I think it's important that we do speak out and we do use our platforms to be giving out messages because people are looking for information and they're hungry for it. But it's important to not come across, you know, in that telltale kind of way, wagging our fingers and saying, "Uh uh-uh, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, I think trying to be approachable and relatable is key. So I've seen some dietitians explaining how actually I used to think like this and I used to suffer in this way. And now I understand it's not the right way. And I love that kind of model Um, but it is important to be highlighting some of the pitfalls with these diets and explaining it's not the best approach and why. Jen how how do you go go about navigating this in your own practice and on your social platforms? Yeah so I was I was looking at this question sort of before we um, we came on and I was thinking actually it's it's the reason that I went into doing media work actually was exactly this because on an individual one-to-one basis you can affect a lot of change and for that person's life it is amazing and you see great things you know and and that's what makes our jobs worthwhile um but in terms of reaching more people social media is a brilliant way to do that I'm a little bit less good at doing that than prayer is <laughs> um less a little bit less often posting um but you know it's why I went into um working for the magazine that I worked for for a few years and it's why I do take up you know tv opportunities or radio interviews as and when I can because Actually, I think the more of us that are out there giving this message, the the better it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's why I'm doing this. It's, um, but also when I was reflecting on this as well, I thought about our own, you know, as Priya was saying, our own struggles with food, weight, body shape, the culture that we live in. And actually, I think as, as healthcare professionals and in particular as dietitians working in this area and in any area of sort of weight management, bariatric surgery, um, I was really thinking about kind of how important it is to look at our own beliefs around food and weight and our own biases and our own sort of weight stigma Um, and I know a lot of people are now um, but we know that there's a much greater prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders in dietetic and nutrition students Um, so without healing our own relationships with food and our and our bodies um, we're we're likely to be unconsciously passing our biases and beliefs on to our patients so I think you know for me it's really key that actually we're all doing our own sort of inner work as well and um, I mean I've had a lot of my own therapy actually not around food but just in terms of kind of 
figuring out who I am and what what my you know where where my unconscious beliefs are and um and making sure that that I understand enough about myself to then be okay to be in this position working in mental health yeah that, that's really um great to hear and thank you for being so you know honest and transparent as well because I can imagine working with patients with their own mental health struggles can really take a toll on your own health as well um I wanted to ask you uh, just going back to what you said about working on magazines, do you think that, I mean, obviously print magazines are, you know, less of a big thing compared to perhaps five, 10 years ago, unfortunately, but do you think that magazines and the media are moving towards a more um, sort of evidence-based approach to their nutrition articles and recipes that they're putting in, or do you think they're at the forefront of kind of leading these diet trends? The magazine I worked for was very evidence-based. So actually I, I loved working for them because I could write from an evidence-based space. Um, I think um, there is probably more push towards more of an evidence base from what I've seen, which is brilliant. Um, having said that, they still need to sell their magazines. And unfortunately, because the public still want to see the sort of sensationalized headlines, you know, I'm thinking of certain papers and things, they they still have to write it from an angle because, because that's who, you know, the, the culture in our society is trying to kind of read these sensational articles. You know, that's what people seem to be interested in. So I'm not entirely sure how we change them to want to read evidence-based articles. I'm not, I have no idea how to do that really, apart from just keep trying. Priya, I wonder if you've got anything to add, because I know you do a lot of media work and sometimes you're quoted talking about fad diets and things. Are you ever, do the publications ever try to influence what you're saying or do they really respect your positioning and your evidence-based approach? I find generally they are quite respectful. Uh, there is always the odd one or two. And certainly um, at the start of the pandemic, I um, had a big falling out and ended up going through the HCPC process uh, because of a journalist. Um, so it certainly does still happen um, and it is something to be cautious about. But I don't think that should deter us from working with journalists. And when you start building up relationships with some of them, it can work really nicely. Um, I think, as Jen said, there are always some publications who take a different spin on things. And it's difficult then to sometimes work with those publications. Um, you sometimes have to be quite strong in your viewpoints and explain you know actually this is my stance on things this is what I want to get across um but I think the tide is changing slowly is what I'm saying yeah I'd agree and it's it's always great to see a registered dietitian or registered nutritionist quoted in these articles I think there's definitely been a, a big movement towards that which is great um, I wanted to also ask you both about healthcare professionals outside of dietetics who are perhaps advocating or promoting diet plans, notably a couple of very well-known doctors who I'm sure you're both familiar with. Um, Jen, you know, is that, does it bring benefits or does it bring disadvantages, do you think? Um, disadvantages mainly, I would say. Um, it's And it's very hard as a, as a registered dietitian to um, discredit what um, another healthcare professional is doing. So 
Um, I try and word things very carefully and um, but also kind of pointing out that actually a lot of um, GPs, for example, um, don't have any training in nutrition. You know, they, they might have, I think somewhere I saw quoted about six hours of nutrition training in a general medicine degree that might have changed since but um you know that is very little in comparison to to what we've all done so um yeah so sort of I guess people tend to believe doctors you know they still do they they believe doctors over us and so um that is quite tricky and it is quite a difficult area to navigate I think yeah Priya I'm wondering if you've got anything to add I just think it's incredibly frustrating and we need some way of dealing with it. So to me, it doesn't make any sense as to how they can give out this information that we know is harmful and is not helpful. So, you know, we have all of these professional bodies who um, look after the credibility of information that's being shared. And I think in my mind, it, it does really rile me. Like, you know, why, why is something not done by these professional bodies about this information? I don't know enough about it to know as to how you would go, you know, why that's not being done and, and how that system works. But it is just really hard for the public when we're giving out one message of check the credentials of the people you're getting information from. Who are you following on social media? You know, we're giving out these messages and then they are following someone who has credentials and is a doctor. And then the information actually is going against what the dietitian might be saying. Yeah, really difficult. On the other hand, I've seen it. I've seen um, other information out there from people saying, "Well, dietitians are giving out wrong information. You shouldn't be following dietitians." So it's just very mixed messages out in general culture and social media right now. Definitely, and I definitely see that toxicity coming through on platforms like Twitter as well, where you have different health professionals, you know, really grating on one another, and it's just a real shame. I think there's a lot more work to be done there. Um, so moving back to diet trends, I'm wondering, you know, with the, we're in July at the moment, summer holidays are fast approaching. Do you think that there are any particular trends that are going to emerge over the next few months, Jen? Um, again, I think it, it is just more of the same, I suspect, just packaged slightly differently. So at the moment, there are sort of all the... Um, the buzzwords around veganism, there's the intuitive eating that's even been picked up on by um, basically what is fad diet. You know, intuitive eating is the least likely place that you would that, that you would think a fad diet could be made from. But you know, they the the diets sort of pick up on those on those new words that are banded around, and they use that as a kind of way of trying to repackage something that's basically a very low calorie or very low carbohydrate normally um both um very low calorie diet and trying to drive really quick weight loss but sort of calling it something different so that everyone goes oh well this must be really good for me then and you know this is amazing and it's got the benefit of weight loss and you know and often you'll get um testimonials from people saying how much energy they've got but actually nobody is going to have real energy if they're having somewhere between 600 and 1200 calories a day you know actually we're not going to have energy we just know that the neurotransmitters in the brain 
change slightly when we're in semi-starvation, which is what the 600 to 1200 calorie a day kind of diet will do to us. And the neurotransmitters change. So people actually report feeling quite euphoric on that semi-starvation for a time until they're really not anymore. But for a time that will happen. So those testimonials that people see going, oh, I felt brilliant on this. And you think, yeah, no, that's not going to (laughs) last. That's really interesting, actually. I didn't know that about the neurotransmitters. Um, Priya, have you have you got anything to add to Jen's answer? I had a little TikTok scroll yesterday, and the thing that kept coming up for me was um, fruit. People eating fruit only, specifically watermelon, seemed to be one. Um, and there were people just showing, you know, this is what I'm going to eat today, massive cartons of just fruit. Which is interesting because the other year fruit was bad, wasn't it? Had too much sugar in it. So we've gone full circle perhaps there. And then I think also um, plant-based eating is still huge um, and is going to continue there. And juicing and smoothies seem to be coming back in as well. Yay to that. (laughs) Um, So I think it is the same old thing. And there was quite a few low-carb diets um, from personal trainer type people popping up as well. So that's that's my estimation from a little bit of a TikTok scroll. By the way, I wouldn't recommend a TikTok scroll as a dietitian. It's quite frustrating, but there you go. I've done it for you. Are you on TikTok? Is that a platform that you use to get your messages out there? I mean, describe, are you on TikTok? So I have a TikTok account and I occasionally remember to post one of my Instagram reels on there. I really am not a fan of the platform. I've decided I'm too old um, and it's not for me, but yeah, I am on there, but you'll find me mainly on Instagram. That's my favorite platform. Right, yeah, your reels are always great. Love watching them. (laughs) Um, So you just mentioned, Jen, intuitive eating and also I think plant-based eating, which um, people listening might think, well, they're quite evidence-based approaches that a lot of us use in practice. So why do you use those terms when you talk about fad diets? Is it that they're being manipulated? Yeah, so yeah, sorry, I didn't explain that properly. Yeah, so they're being used, the terms are being used, but actually it's not really what, they are about so you know as Priya said plant-based eating well okay we don't mean you literally only eat plants you know we don't mean that actually you spend your you know a week eating only vegetables or only fruit um and the same with intuitive eating I think because it's it's become a sort of I mean, obviously, intuitive eating has always been around. Unfortunately, it's sort of been picked up upon um, by by the fad diet kind of industry. And it, it is being used a little bit more like I see it a lot with kind of eating mindfully. Well, OK, if you're only eating fruit in a day of course you're going to eat it all mindfully because I mean you're basically starving your body so you're completely preoccupied with food so but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually intuitive eating you know intuitive eating is dropping all of that and actually concentrating on the whole bigger picture so yeah it's it's about the terms being misused Mm, manipulative marketing as I like to call it (laughs) So just coming towards the end of the episode, um, from both of your experiences, what are the main challenges when we as dietitians try to get people to achieve a healthier, more balanced approach to diets, Priya? There are so many. I think the first thing I would say is mindset is key. 
So encouraging people to think long-term, what are their goals? And we're not talking about, I want to lose half a stone in six weeks. We're talking, actually, I want to be able to have a family. Um, I want to be able to run around and chase my kids when I'm older. That was one of the ones that I had um, this week from somebody, a man who's about to become a dad. I want to be able to look after my wife. You know, I want to be able to travel. I want to, so I had somebody recently and her, goal was in six months time, I want to be able to go paddle boarding on holiday with my dad. You know, what are your goals? Now let's try and think, okay, so can you do that right now? What's stopping you? What are the changes that we need to make? And a lot of the work I think that we need to sometimes do as dietitians is working on the psychological side with people, helping them to think about how they view their bodies, how they view themselves and how they can start being a lot kinder and showing themselves more compassion, not being as critical and being less judgmental of everybody, which then translates into hopefully being less judgmental of themselves. So I think that's often the starting point rather than specifically the food. And that can be difficult because when somebody comes to a dietitian, they expect us to dive in and go, here are your three take home points of what to change in your diet. And sometimes I might say to someone, actually, I want you to go away and I want you to start writing down a list of mindful activities you can do and we're going to focus on that side first and then we'll come back to the nutrition later that's very interesting that holistic approach and I think sometimes as nutrition professionals we can perhaps slightly overlook that particularly in our training when it's so focused on the nutritional science aspect Jen have you got any advice as to how we can successfully help patients to navigate that healthier balanced approach to eating yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely what Priya was saying about the psychological side, you know, from my experience, um, most of my clients, when they first come to me, aren't addressing the psychological causes of their eating patterns, because um, often they're, they're just not conscious of it. So I think, you know, I see it as part of my job to sort of bring that up, help them to get that awareness. Um they absolutely know, like, you know, I'm thinking of my weight management or bariatric clients, they absolutely know what they should be eating. So actually me giving them information about what a healthy balanced diet looks like doesn't necessarily kind of get them to change that behavior. So, but it's more about sort of what is actually stopping them from changing. So sometimes that's shame about their weight and they've often felt, you know, if they've been on and off healthy eating plans or fad diets or whatever, um, you know, as we know with all of these fad diets, people will lose weight and then they will put back on the weight when they stop eating like that. So, so they often feel like that is a failure of themselves as opposed to that being a failure of the diet. Um, and so their self-esteem tends to be quite low and they, they almost come to me going, well, my body just can't, you know, I just can't lose weight. I just can't do this healthy eating thing. I can't do anything because when I try and eat healthily, all I do is then eat crisps in the evening. And so I tend to then look at, if I do look at the sort of more food side of things, I look at, okay, how can we get that, um, that balance throughout the day because actually quite often people will really restrict themselves through the day and then obviously their bodies are starved so they end up overeating at night or what they feel is overeating at night and often you know the foods that they don't necessarily want to be choosing and also um because I work in bariatric surgery there's also sometimes 
Um, I believe, and I've been doing this for about 10 years, an unconscious fear of losing weight as well. Um, so quite often the weight is there as a protective barrier to um, certain feelings or um, for, you know, for many reasons and often, you know, from trauma backgrounds and people report that they feel quite unseen when they're in a bigger body, whereas when they lose the body weight, um, they, uh, they actually notice that they're, they're kind of more seen and people notice them more, which some people can find really difficult and really triggering. So I think there's a lot of things, you know, psychologically that can be going on that certainly when I first started out as a dietitian I really wasn't that aware of and it's only through experience that I've sort of picked up on the fact that this is going on for a lot of people. Absolutely and, and do you think Jen that there's enough focus on dietetic training on the psychological aspects of supporting patients? No I don't but you know but then equally I do work in mental health dietetics but having said that I do think that all of dietetics is can be seen as mental health you know anything where people are using food as a way of suppressing feelings you know there are other things going on as well so it's not necessarily you know some patients will come to me um, when they're going for bariatric surgery and be very clear that the only reason that they have got to a BMI of 50 is because they've just eaten too much. And I try my hardest to get in there with, I wonder, you know, what the reasons are behind all of this, but they're absolutely adamant that, you know, no, it's just because I've eaten too much over the course of my life. Other people are more able to kind of see that there's other things that have led to that. Um, but definitely, I think more training. I know we we all did sort of counselling skills module, but but I think what I've learned from a psychological perspective um, since being trained as a dietitian, I've learned through my own therapy, through supervision with psychotherapists, through working in teams of psychotherapists and psychologists, and and that is how I've learned basic, and through working with the patients, obviously. Thank you very much, Jen. Um, I wanted to ask on a more personal level to you both now, how do you promote sort of body acceptance and body positivity in your own lifestyle and your own households? Priya, going to you first. Um, I think that's a question you should probably ask my children, to be honest. Um, I've always had the kind of view with my children that we need to be comfortable with our bodies. So, you know, they will still walk in whilst I'm having a shower, whilst I'm getting changed. Um, it's interesting because now I've had um, another basically family move in and we're blending families and they're very different in their approach. So to my other half, he's like, oh, gosh, your children literally walk in when you're having a shower and you have no problem with that. I'm like, no, not really. Um, and we've always had a lot of chat around our kitchen table that's where our chats tend to take place at dinner around food and how nutritious it is and my children say that my um catchphrase we had this thing where they were like mummy what's your catchphrase it's like I don't know and they worked it out like mummy your catchphrase is that all food is good food it's just about how much of it you have and we all need to love and accept our bodies like wow is that my catchphrase I love that so I think, you know, weaving these messages in is really key. And I've always had chats with my kids around how all bodies are accepted. And just because someone is in a larger body or a smaller body doesn't mean that they are any less worthy or that they are any less healthy. We can't tell that. 
But I also think that culturally, the kind of toys that we encourage children to play with is important as well. That my children haven't had things like Barbies because of just the way that they look. So I've been quite thoughtful in that respect, although I'm probably and undoubtedly have done lots of other things very wrong as a parent. And I think also the way that we address food so things like biscuits. I have children who come to my house as the dietitian's house for biscuits because they don't have biscuits in their house. And in my house, there is an open biscuit tin. Um, and what I've seen through this with my own children is that it means they just know they're there all the time and they're not actually that bothered. And they have biscuits a couple of times a week. They've still got their Easter chocolate, not because they're not allowed to eat it, but because it's not a big deal to them. I think the way that we really role model food and bodies and being kind to ourselves is important. So we do things like we will reflect together. We've done scrapbooking together and, you know, building these kind of mindful activities in about how we look after our mental health is also really key. So that's kind of some of the things that I do. I mean, that's fantastic to hear. I literally love everything that you've mentioned. Um, as a mum to be myself, I'm definitely, um, yeah, it's things you wouldn't even think about, the kinds of toys that you give to your kids and the effect that that can have. Um, that Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Jen, what's it like in your household? Yeah, very similar, except we do have Barbies, much to my annoyance. But we have got some who have slightly more normal looking figures. So, so I did make sure that there were a couple of that. There's not many of those, though, I have to say. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of regretting the Barbies now. I think, oh, God, why are they there? <laughs> I, I have to say, I've never bought them a Barbie myself. <laughs> but they just ended up with this. But yeah, no, absolutely the same, you know. Again, you know, they walk in on me on the shower, on the toilet, just everything, you know. So, and 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 the same the other way around, you know. I'm there with them in the bathroom if they want me to be. Again, you know, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because then you you kind of look at things that go, okay, they they need their own privacy and whatever, and that's fine as well, you know. But they they're kind of comfortable just wandering around naked most of the time, um, and. In terms of food, exactly the same. You know, my children still have their Easter chocolate because they could eat it whenever they wanted to, really. They still ask, actually. They don't just go and eat it. They always say, can I have some? And I'm always like, yeah. And they'll still, they'll say things like, oh, how much of this can I have? And I just reflect it back and I go, well, how much do you think you should have? Or how much do you feel like having? And then they'll normally have less than what I would have said any, you know, like I have a thing in my head of like, well, maybe this much, but I'll reflect it back to them. And they normally have less than that anyway. So um, that works really well. They know that fruits and vegetables are, are really good for them. My eldest is very anti-eating fruits and vegetables, but she'll eat certain random ones like courgette and asparagus, which is quite an adult taste for a nine-year-old. So um, so I tend to sort of do those for her and then cook different ones for the other one. Um, so that there's that choice there and, you know, and both of them are happy. Um, yeah, so all food is good food, really. And um, in terms of talking about other people's bodies like that started to come up now and so uh, but I now noticed that actually Jessica who's my eldest she said to me the other day oh that lady's got more body fat mummy or more body muscle and I was like yeah she's just in a bigger body and that's right you know so they don't use which I was so pleased like she wouldn't ever say that person is fat and and so I think okay well I'm actually doing 
the right thing in terms of like how I'm talking about these things. Um, and maybe at school, potentially, they might be getting those messages too, but I'm not entirely sure. They started at a new school. I'm hoping to get in there and try and get those messages in. <laughs> I would just add, just thinking of anyone who's listening to this and going, oh my goodness, I don't do anything like this with my children, that it's never too late to start sharing those messages. So I've had three children move in with me who haven't been exposed in the same way to messages about nutrition and bodies. Um, and already after a couple of months, I'm seeing changes in the way that they relate to things and in the way that they eat um, and in the way that they don't kind of almost feel that they have to hoard food as much. So it's never too late to start making those changes. And I guess that's the message to really give out to people that you're working with clinically as well. It's never too late to start working on your relationship with food. And it's never too late to start changing those messages and those ideas that you're sharing in your family as well. Well, that's fantastic. I've learned a lot myself and I'm sure that everybody listening will have as well. Um, I want to know what's the main message you would both like listeners to take away from this podcast episode, Jen, starting with you. Um, I think, you know, that actually remembering that it's us as healthcare professionals who can lead in changing the rhetoric around weight and diet. Um, that's really important. And, and we do know that some people will improve their health by losing weight. But actually, it's not the case for everybody. And as Priya said, you know, whether somebody is in a bigger body or a smaller body, we know nothing about their health until we actually look at what their health is like. So we can't make those judgments. Um, people can make, make really great improvements to their health by eating more along the lines of a Mediterranean diet that we all know about, um, exercising in a way that they actually enjoy rather than exercising for punishment or to earn or burn off their food, um, talking you know, about resting and sleeping well, reducing their alcohol intake, staying hydrated. So none of those things relate to weight, but have numerous um, physical and psychological benefits. So let's try and concentrate on those first and also make sure that we've looked inside ourselves before trying to fix everybody around us. Very useful advice. Thank you, Jen. And Priya, what's your top message from this episode? I think that is to start slowly with people and to start teaching them about these psychological interventions they're thinking about um, practicing interceptive awareness so tuning in to what's going on inside how does that feel how does it look to you can you sit with it can you breathe through it I do a lot of work with people where we do grounding techniques and breathing techniques in a session so they have that practical um, aspect that they can take away with them so it doesn't always start with the nutrition sometimes we need to look a little bit more holistically about what's going on around them um, and thinking you know how else can I help what other information have I got that I can share and that might mean that we have to upgrade some of our training along the way absolutely then also I think um, the idea that it's never too late start making change because lots of people think that actually is this is just me now this is what I now have to live with and it doesn't have to be and then the idea that we as dietitians have this big role in spreading messages of positivity and around health but also sharing the realism about what it's like for us as well. 
Well, thank you both so much for your time today and for sharing your valuable experience and messages with us. A huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe podcast, please do consider subscribing and leaving a review or a five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.